If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. We're going to look at the whole chapter again. We're able to make uh, some large progress really with the uh, taking a whole chapter and looking at these things. As we just move through the book of Revelation, our goal in this is primarily understanding. That is, that is really what my task is to communicate this. It's a difficult book to understand. And my task is to communicate it in such a way that you come away from this service, from this text, saying, I know more of this text, more, more about this text than when we started. You may not know everything. You won't know, have all of your answers. Uh, or your questions answered, but hopefully you will have a, a pretty good gist of the purpose of this passage. The purpose of the passage, and I say the purpose of the passage, because that's what we are after. What is God intending to communicate here? And that is the hard work of study. That's what Paul told Timothy to do, study to show yourself approved unto God, study it out. What's the intent? What's the point? What's the purpose? What is God, what is God uh, saying here? And then, and then, and only then, when we get it right, then we begin to apply. Then we begin to say, now how does this work its way out into our life? Now, I seek to uh, give understanding, but as, uh, as well, this is a sermon and I seek to give application. And I want to challenge you, and I want to challenge myself as we look at the text. We cannot just look at this without any recourse to our own life. It, it, has, it has huge meaning and huge implications to our lives. And so that's kind of the purpose that draws us together. It's what we're trying to do here. Now, let's, let's go into the text. Well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you again for the privilege of standing here in this pulpit. The significance of just even a pulpit, of, of a place to put the Word of God. And we stand and we just open this Word, we examine this Word, we read this Word, examine this Word, and apply this Word to our life. Lord, this has been going on since the New Testament. They would open the Word and expound the Word. Christ set that example. Paul set that example. Just of reading the Word, expounding the Word. Exalting this word. Lord, may we always do that. I pray that you would bless our time together. I thank you for this precious moment. Um, I, I pray, Lord, for understanding. I pray for clarity. For then application. Help us to not just know about these things, but apply these things to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most common questions in Scripture, really, if you find it throughout Scripture, is how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You see that in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. These, um, these, these uh, wise, these writers, they would say, how long, O Lord, will the righteous suffer? How long, O Lord, will the wicked prevail? You see that in some of the Psalms and the Proverbs. And it's how long. And the prophets would say, how long, O Lord, do we have to wait? When are you going to come? 
When we get into the New Testament, we see even Paul said that uh, even creation itself is groaning, waiting for the day where Christ will come and reclaim His earth and restore it and set up His kingdom here on this earth. And the creation groans within itself, it says, for Him to establish Himself. And, of course, the disciples, when they were with Christ, what was their constant question? When, when are you going to establish your, your kingdom? Is it today? Is it now? And they were expecting it at any moment. How long? When is it going to take place? And really, ever since the Garden of Eden, when man first sinned, man has been awaiting someone to come along and correct that sinfulness. And that's what we see. And we ourselves, don't we? We groan within ourselves. We anticipate. We wait. We say, Lord, how long? When are you going to, to come? When are you going to rescue us out of this? And that's the cry really of our own heart. And we just await Christ's return. And we know He said that He would return. He is going to come back. And we keep, we, we know that He will keep that promise. And we await that. But you know what? Christ Himself, even Christ Himself said, you know, I don't even know the day. I don't know when I'm going to return. I don't know the day or the hour, but only the Father knows that. Remember when he said that? Only the Father knows that. He relinquished that information. He's going to trust his Father on that. So he says, I don't even know. But he said, I will give you some signs. I know what's going to lead up to that day. And in Matthew 24, you don't have to turn there. We're not going to look at that. He gave us some signs, he said. Some, some uh, things that will, uh, some miracles and some things from heaven we can look at that, that shows here's, here's what's going to take place. And he said it resembles, it resembles a mother giving birth. There's going to be like birth pains. There's going to be judgments. There's going to be pain on this earth. And it's going to be very intense. And the intention, the, uh, it's going to be more intense as time goes along. And just like a birth. It's like a birth. And then you, when the, right before the baby's born, it's just so intense. And all of a sudden, then you have a baby. And that's the same way it's going to be. And that's what we're seeing in, uh, played out, really, in the book of Revelation. This seven-year period of time of tribulation that leads up and with intense judgment and frequency. And then all of a sudden, Christ will return. There will be relief. And we've seen that. We've seen the first wave, the, the three waves. First of all, the seal judgments. And we've looked at those. Now we're looking at the trumpet judgments. And then we'll look at the bowl judgments. And there's waves of judgment that's going to come along. Just like waves of pain. Been with your wives, you've seen that. Those waves of pain. It's a good analogy that Christ gives us. And he says, now look, this is, this is a, a good sign. Now, what's interesting to me, between the sixth and the seventh seal, and the sixth and the seventh trumpet, and the sixth and the seventh bowl judgments, the ones that we see here in the book of Revelation, between the sixth and the seventh, there's always an interlude. There's always this time where it seems like the judgments get just so intense, so so harsh, it's as though the camera just swings and, and turns their attention to something else, just for a brief time. It's kind of a, a little interlude. It's as though it gets so intense, you just you can't stand it. Just just take back, step back, and and take a breather, a little bit to get our attention off of something else. And that's what's happening in the chapter ten here, 
You need to understand that. And it's a timely interlude. We need this. And John needed this. He needed to step back and he needed to, to process what he is seeing. Process the implications of what's going on here. He is not to just be a, a journalist that is just uh, using a, a lens or, or maybe a pen. It's just observing these things, writing these things down objectively and just uh, communicating that to. No, he is a real person. He is a, a real life, a, a soul, and he has to process what he's seeing. What he is seeing is so profound, so harsh, and he has to process it. Now, let me pull this together a little bit. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. The return of Christ for us, the return of Christ is the, the end of this waiting game that we have. And, and we're looking forward to that. We're excited about the Christ's return, but it is the beginning of judgment. It's the beginning of judgment for the unbeliever. There's a bitter sweetness to this. When we look forward to this return of Christ, Christ is going to return. That is the sweet. That is excitement. That is going to be great. But at the same time, it's the beginning of an eternity without Christ for so many people. And that's, that's sobering. That's sobering. Now, I want you to look at this. There's three things that uh, this, divide, this passage is divided up into three little sections here that I want you to see. First of all, you have the description. Now, God sends this angel as a distraction as a, to, to kind of pull John in and, and let him help him process this. This angel comes, God sends, and we see the description of this angel. This angel takes an oath, the oath of this angel, and then we'll look at John's participation. John's pulled into this vision himself. Look at number verse 1. And we'll look at a description of this angel. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet was like a pillar of fire. And he had in his right hand, or his hand, a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven pills of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven pills of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven pills of thunder had spoken and do not write them. Let's stop right there. This is interesting. You know, this is a kind of a strange turn of events. This is unusual sight here. He sees this, this uh, great angel, he said, or strong angel coming down out of heaven. He said, well, what is that? Who is this? Well, obviously he's some kind of high-ranking angel, you, you would think. Some people say, well, this is Michael the archangel, or maybe Gabriel the archangel, one of the high-ranking angels. Some people would say, well, this is Christ. And when you look at the description and you can compare it, yeah, there's some similarities there. And they would say, well, this is Christ, but I'm not sure that this is Christ. This isn't, in fact, in the book of Revelation, Christ is never referred to as an angel. There's a clear distinction in the book of Revelation. And when John is describing Christ in the book of Revelation, he's never ambiguous. He's always very clear that this is, that this is Christ. But there's another reason I don't believe this is Christ is because he uses the third word there. I saw another strong angel. Now, we compare that with chapter five and verse two. If you turn back over there, he says, and I saw a strong angel. So this is the first strong angel. 
He says, now, I saw another strong angel. And the word another there in the Greek, it would be translated another of a same kind or another of a different kind. And that's the, they would make that distinction. Now, we don't really have that distinction. If I say I bought another car, you, you don't know if it's an SUV or a car or but I would, I would distinguish it. Another of the same kind. We have all kinds of SUVs, so we bought another SUV, but it's not like that. In the Greek, it was another of the same kind. And this is another of the same kind of angels as we've seen in the passage, just like all the other angels. He's another of the same kind, but he's a strong angel. Now, if it was talking about Christ, it would be another of a different kind. He is not like the angels. So I, I don't believe that this is Christ. Now, the the description is, is pretty clear here, and it's, it's very much uh, seems to be representing God and the voice of God. But look at the description. He's clothed with a cloud, a cloud. In Scripture, many times clouds are associated with, with judgment and, and um, lightning and thunder and this uh, horrific scene of judgment. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, right? In the, in the, in the throes of, of judgment. He's coming down, he has this cloud on, and then he has a rainbow over his head. And you're kind of reminded of the the covenant, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his covenant. And you remember the rainbow, the last time we saw a rainbow that's mentioned in Scripture, there was another judgment, right? Judgment that God brought upon the earth, the flood, and he covenanted with man that he would not flood the earth anymore. And so what you see is this combination of, of judgment, but uh, tempered with mercy. In fact, that's, that's what else you see here. His face was shining like the sun. His feet was like a pillar of fire. Now, if you look at your front of your bulletin, we found a picture that tries to depict some of this. The, the fire on the feet was not, it was a little hard to see, but it, it might be there. But you kind of get the idea. This is a strong, powerful, intimidating angel. And he's kind of representing judgment and tempered with mercy a little bit. But he has a, a little book in his hand. You say, well, what's the little book? Well, this is the main focus of the whole book of Revelation, isn't it? Early on, we see if you look back, chapter 5, who had the first, who had the book first? Well, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I saw the, the right hand whom sat on the throne, the book. Now, the word is biblion, and it's just a scroll, essentially. And this scroll uh, was held by God. It was then come, uh, Christ came and he took it out of his hand. Now, what is this book? This book is the... Um, and Now, this is the... I'd say this is the same book. And it's a little book. It's just it's made smaller, and you'll see why in a little bit. This is a little book. But this is the book that Christ took, and he broke the seals. And so now it's open. This is an open, this is an open book, and that's, that's how you see it described. A little book, which was open. Now it was opened by Christ. If you look at verse 8, he says, take the book, which is open. It's described as being open. And this is the book that Christ opened himself. I believe that this is the same book. Now it's smaller in size for a purpose, and you'll, you'll see that in just a minute. What is this book? Well, this book is the, the title deed to the earth. This book has a description in it of what Christ is going to do when He comes and reclaims the earth as His possession. It is His. It's His inheritance. And someday He will come and reclaim that. And it's primarily talks about judgment and how He's going to purify and purge the earth. That's, that's what you see. That's this little book. 
Now, so this angel has this book, and he's standing. So he, apparently he's a great, a, a big angel, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. He has a, a huge voice. He speaks, and his voice comes out, and he says, as if a, a lion. Now, I've been to zoos before. There was at a zoo one time, and this just a, a strange thing. I was looking at one one of the exhibits, and... Um, uh, I didn't realize how close I was to the, the lion cage, the lion exhibit. And I was, I was just looking over here, and all of a sudden the lion just roared. And I don't know if you've ever heard that, but the fierceness of that deep roar, I mean, it could just shake your inside, just terrifying. It's terrifying. An impressive roar. And I heard that. And, and, and it left an impression on John. This loud war, thunderous war. In fact, he calls it pills of thunder. And then out of those pills of thunder, these were words that were written. Words that were written. Because John was getting ready to write them down. He was getting ready to write these, these words down. He's a good correspondent. Remember, Christ told him, write down what you see. Write down what you hear. So he's writing these things down. He's doing due diligence. But then he was interrupted. Look at verse 4. These pills of thunder came. He was getting ready to write them down. And I heard a voice from heaven. Seal up the things which the, the seven pills of thunder had spoken. Seal them up. Don't write them down yet. I'm not going to reveal that yet. This is, this is reserved. This is reserved for, for God. Now I want to just make an, uh, a point here. God reserves the right to reveal what He wants to reveal in the timing that He wants to reveal them. Now that's an important uh, theological understanding. God reveals in His timing what He wants to reveal at just the right time. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is a verse that I keep coming back to, but it's a verse, it's a principle that you need to know. Because there's a theological framework associated with this. Look at this. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. There are certain things that God says, I'm going to keep to myself. You're not going to know those things. I'm going to keep them to myself. We're not responsible for those things. He has kept them. The secret things belong to the Lord. He has that right, doesn't he? He is God, by the way. And we're not. So he has the prerogative, right, to, to keep these things secret. But listen to this. But the things revealed belong to us. Those things that he has given, those are ours. We hang on to those. And they belong to our sons. And, and you can include daughters forever. That we may observe all the words of the law. Those things that are written. Now, there's certain things, and God holds back. He's got this, these secret things he does not want to reveal. And he says, John, don't write these things down yet. Don't write them down. Now, this is a principle. I say this is important because God always gives revelation in progress. He did not, he did not take Adam in the garden and said, okay, Adam, I've got, 20, I've got 66 books that I want to, uh, I want you to write down. And take a pad of paper and pencil and, and write these things down and, and I'll give them and they'll be for all generations. Everybody will be equal and they'll be... No. It was progressive revelation. In fact, Adam, it was just very simple. Adam, don't eat from this tree. That's it. 
you know, he, he obviously talked with God. There's some revelation there. He dealt with Noah in a little bit different way. Noah, build an ark. Abraham, I want you to, I want you to leave your family. I'm going to make of you a great nation. He dealt with men in different time frames, economies, if you will, in different ways. And we call that a dispensation. A dispensation. And we need to understand that's the way God operates. And God holds man accountable to the revelation that he's given at that time. At that time. So I, I'm a dispensationalist. Now you can take this doctrine way too far, completely begin to read dispensationalism into Scripture, and we have to be very careful about that. But God gives His revelation at certain times, at, at His prerogative, and He holds man accountable. Now there's a, a few applications that I want to make from that. First of all, when God holds back, He's kept secret, then that makes what He has revealed more precious to us, doesn't it? That makes it more precious. We think, this is, this is, this is something that is important enough that God has given us, and so it's precious to us. Because why? Because we know the mind of God. Because we know now how God thinks about this particular issue. And for people who want to please God, that's important, Right? When we want to please God, when we uh, uh, have God's revelation, we can look through Scripture and see, how do we please God? Well, we can see through Scripture how to do that, what He enjoys. Let me give you another application. So it's important to us. It, it makes it special when God He gives us this revelation. He wants us to know just at the right time. It's special for us. Number two, this by way of application, we are accountable by way. We are accountable for what we have been given. Now, that's important. In fact, in the book of Corinthians, Paul, you know, there was, uh, there was a time when the Corinthians said, don't give us any more revelation. <laughs> We'd rather not, not know than to be held accountable for what God has, what God has told us. We can be like that. We, we are held accountable, even though it was written 2,000 years ago or even further back. We are held accountable, every man on this earth, is held accountable, every person on this earth is held accountable to what God has given, to what God has revealed. That's important. That's important. We're to obey it. We're to live righteous lives and, and we're to know what this word says. God has revealed it. In fact, we are, in fact, in our day, that's church age, we look back and, and we see a whole lot of revelation. We have a lot more today than Abraham had. We have a lot more today than Moses had. Isaiah and those guys, they would love to know what we know today. This is a precious thing, but we're held accountable. Number three, this revelation is sufficient. That's another thing we need to know from this. God knows every word that is in this. He has revealed it. This is His, and He has put parameters on it. And it is everything that we need for life and godliness. We don't need anything more. It is complete. It is complete. If you look over to Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 22, the end of the, the end of this book, Revelation 22 verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy. This is a prophecy, this book, that Revelation that he's talking about, of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And he goes on, if you take away. 
Now, we don't add to it. This book is complete. It says what God wants it to say. Every word is important. Every word He he revealed it. And it is for us, and we are held accountable to it. That's sobering things. So we would never add to God's Word. We never, you know, take the Bible and just, okay, uh, just add, add a few things here, add a few things there. Uh, that's what, uh, if you look at uh, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, I actually have a copy of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, and he just took and he carved out a lot of Scripture. He said, I don't like this part, or whatever reason. He pulled it, he pulled it out, and anything supernatural, I think. And you, We cannot do that. Now, what we do today, we would never think of doing that. But what we would do today is read our own ideas into Scripture, wouldn't we? Read our own ideas into it. What we think that it says, instead of careful understanding of the historical context, we take our 21st century mind and we read into Scripture. We have to be very, very careful. God has revealed what He has revealed and He holds us accountable for what He holds us accountable. And this is it. We dare not read more into Scripture. Now, I've got to move on. Let's go on. So God, He keeps back this secret. He keeps back this information. Don't write this down yet, John. I'm not going to reveal it yet. You say, well, what was the secret? I don't know. It's a secret. We don't know. So we have a description of this angel, though. We have a description of this angel. Now, look at number two. We have a, this angel then takes an oath. Now, this gets more interesting. In verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand. And the same angel, he keeps referring to the sea and the land so that you know that he's not talking about a different angel. And this angel lifts up his right hand to heaven and he and swore. He's taken this oath by him. This is by him who lives forever and ever. This is God. He's taking an oath by God. I'm promising this is something that will happen, he says, to him who created heaven and all the things in it, and earth and all the things in it, and the sea and all the things in it. Is there anything else? That's pretty complete, isn't it? God is the whole, the comprehensive. He has authority over all of these things. I swear by God that, and here's the oath. There, there be that there will be the no, delay no longer, no more delay. This is it. This is going to happen. No more delay. Go, go on to verse seven. But in the day of the voice of the seventh angel, now that's interesting. The seventh angel. It's not this angel. It's the seventh angel. Now remember, we're between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. These angels have been uh, gathered together. They've been given trumpets. And when they blow the trumpets, there's judgment that comes out, right? And we're between the sixth one and the seventh one. We've got one more to go. And when the seventh one comes, when the seventh one sounds, it says, then the mystery of God is finished. It's all going to be revealed. Everybody will know. It'll be very, very clear. It says, as, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Just like everybody's going to know, everybody's going to be revealed. Just like he revealed things to the prophets. Not completely, but he revealed things to the prophets and uh, it's going to be revealed just like that. You say, what in the world is that about? Well, this is an oath. And this angel says with an oath that there's no more delay. Look back, look at over at Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And we'll see what happens when that seventh angel blows the trumpet. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded. And there were 
loud voices in heaven saying, here it is, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. This is it. This is what the the earth has been groaning for. This is what we've been waiting for. Lord, how long? This is what we've, we've all been anticipating. And this is the great moment. And this angel has come. He says, no more delay. This is it. When this seventh trumpet sounds, here's what's going to happen. Everything's going to be revealed. If you look back, everything's going to be revealed. Christ is going to come and there's going to be a consummation pulling together of all the the end. Everything's going to come to an end right here. All the questions are going to be answered. Now, that's great. That's something we anticipate, something we look forward to. You say, what is that going to look like? Let me show you some passages of Scripture just quickly. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Colossians 1 16 says this, for by him who, who, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's the good angels and the bad angels. All the creation, all the physical creation we see and all the invisible creation that we don't see that God created. All things have been created through him and what? For Him. They're created for Him. This whole physical world and even the invisible spiritual world is for Christ. And it's all going to come together. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. Ephesians 1, 10 says, With a view. Now, start with verse 9. And He made known to us the mystery of His will. He's let us know some of these things beforehand. The mystery of his will, according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, that's Christ, with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of time. This administration, what is that? This economy, this time frame of the, the fullness of time. That's the, the end, how things are going to wrap up, the end of time. Suitable for the fullness of time. That is, now he's going to explain it, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. One of these days, Christ is going to come and he's going to wrap it all up. And it's going to be all about him. This all belongs to him. This is his inheritance. And someday he's going to come and claim it. Things in heaven, things on the earth, and it's all going to come to a conclusion. Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Here's what's going to happen to us people while we're here on earth. When Christ comes and reclaims this, here's, what's, here's the, a, better, a better vision of what's going on. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. To all the people, every knee, all the people, every people all the people will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's, that includes everybody. There's no escaping this. And every and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything is going to come together and they're going to revolve around one single person and that is Jesus Christ. He is the, the hero of all of history. He is the redeemer. He is the redeemer of the story of history. Let me show you one other passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Skip down to verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. That's he is preeminent. He is he is the one. Everything is going to revolve around preeminent. The first fruits. After that, those who are in Christ at His coming. Okay, at His coming. Look at verse twenty-four. Then, then comes the end when He comes. He's claiming all of this. He is going to be preeminent. Then He comes when He hands over the kingdom of. The God and Father, He's going to hand that over. Let's just stop right there for a second. He's going to hand that over. Now, He's going to be the preeminent one. He's going to come, He's going to claim and, and, and purge this earth. He's going to redeem this earth. He's going to bring it and it's going to revolve around Him. He's going to take this and then He's going to hand that over. He's going to give that over to, to God. Now, just for the sake of time, skip down to verse 28. Then all things are subject to Him then the Son Himself also will submit or subject to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. Now you say, where are we? We are in Christ. We, it was in the passage. We're, we're in Christ and we're all part of His inheritance. We're all going to be worshiping Him. He's going to take this great monstrosity, this great creation, this play of His glory, and He's going to give it to the Father. That's pretty grand. And we're right there in the process. We're right there in the middle of all of this. He's going to do it. Let me give you one more verse. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. You say, well, how do we apply this? How do we pull this together? This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. That includes Israel, the nation of Israel. That includes before Israel. That includes the church age. This is the whole kingdom of God. And where are we? We want to be considered worthy of that. Do we work our way to salvation? No, it's not talking about that. But if we're part of that kingdom, we're working for that king. We're working for that king. We're moving that kingdom. We want to be part of that. And you know what? Suffering is going to be a part of that. If we suffer for the cause of Christ, he says, you're considered worthy a part of that kingdom of God. That's an incredible thought. Now, don't... I know what you're thinking, oh, Catholicism, we're trying to work our way to heaven, all this kind of stuff. No, no, it's not that. You understand what he's saying. Consider yourself worthy. When you see you're persecuted for the kingdom of God, you think, I'm a part of this, and this great kingdom in some way going to be wrapped up in Christ, and that great gift is going to be given to the Heavenly Father, and it's going to be all one, all in Christ all together and we'll be all in all. Everything will be wrapped around God the Father, the giver of life. And we'll be right there. What a great and wonderful privilege that is. And so this angel comes and he says it's going to be, it's going to conclude. He says, I swear, I see it. You could say the end of the tunnel. Now I'll tell you this. My family travels south. We go through the two tunnels down on 77, right? At the beginning of the tunnels, what do we do? We take a deep breath and, and we hold our breath and we see if we can hold our breath all the way to the end of the tunnel, right? You're, okay, it's just our family. We're kind of crazy anyway. We hold our breath. Now, it, when I was younger, I wouldn't even think about it. But now, man, 
I'm thinking this thing's never going to end. And and I'm looking and I, you kind of crest and you kind of then you see the, the end of that tunnel. And you think, OK, I can hang on. I, I can see, I, I see the end of the tunnel and we're holding our breath. And as soon as that tunnel, as soon as the end of that tunnel, we just we just explode. It's hard. That's what the angel's doing here. I see the end of the tunnel. It's like a scout. He's gone out and, and he's, he's kind of discovered everything. And he sees what's going to happen. And he's coming back and he's telling us, hey, it's just up ahead. It's just here. And let me tell you this. I'm just In all five of the births of my children, it's amazing. I just re- remember this stuff. But in all five of them, right before the birth, just really a few minutes, what do they say? Oh, I see the crown. I said, wow, it's a great crown. I'm going to be rich. This is great. And what do they mean? The crown of the head. You see that crown of the head. Boy, that baby's going to come. It's going to come fast. That's exactly what's happening here. This angel is saying, look, he's coming. And by way of application, Christ is going to be, he is going to come and he's going to set up his reign. And that is going to be it. There's a finality to that. All of the questions are going to be answered for us. But listen, it's a sobering time as well. We submit to His kingship now. We bow the knee now. We subject, we work for Him now while we're on earth, while there is time. Listen, when He comes, when He comes, those who are outside of Christ, those who die in their sins, those who are not in Christ, there's judgment. And it's a finality. It's a finality. It's a sobering thought. We have to answer the question ourselves. Are you in the kingdom of God? We have to think about that ourselves. Are you in the kingdom of God? Are you in Christ? Now let's move on. You have the description. You have the oath. Look at John's participation. We'll just move through this quickly. Verse 8. John's participation here. Then the voice which I heard from heaven. This is probably God speaking. He's coming from heaven. I heard Again, speaking to me. To me. He's addressing me this time. He's not, he's not just a, something out there. He's addressing John himself and saying, Go take the little book, or go take the book which is open. Now, it's the same book, same book, the focus of attention in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land, making sure, that understanding, communicating these things correctly. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the book, the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. It was wonderful. When I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I said, what in the world is this about? It's kind of crazy. It's symbolic, isn't it? It's symbolic language. He's, he's communicating to us something that's really kind of profound here. He's, he takes this little book. It's obviously made smaller so John can eat it. This little scroll, this little roll-up piece of paper. John then eats it. And, and it's, it's bitter, or it's sweet in his mouth. It's sweet as honey, he says. You say, what's that part? That's just the, the fact that Christ has returned. The fact that, that Christ is, is here and purged the earth and, and is going to reclaim His earth, that's sweet to the believer. It's a, we just anticipate that. We look forward to that. And then, but then when he, when he gets into his stomach, when it's beginning to digest, when it's beginning to, he's beginning to understand these things, it becomes bitter. 
He says, oh no. So what's bitter? It's just the sobering reality of what is happening. The sobering reality of judgment in all the souls of these people. And then there's a commissioning service in verse 11. And then he said, they said, they said to me, you must prophesy. Now John, he's on the island of Patman. He's 90 some years old. He's been exiled and he's been recommissioned. He recommissioned back into the ministry. John, I'm not finished with you yet. I want you to prophesy. He's talking about this book. But the word prophesy also can mean preach in a general sense. Proclaim these things again concerning many people and nations and tongues and, and kings. John, you've got to get back out there. You've you got to do something. John, so John was pulled into this vision. I'm going to wrap this up. He's pulled into this vision. And John is, is not just a casual observer. It's very, it's very easy for John to just write these things down. And Christ says, no, I, I don't want you to write. I want you to just stop for a second. I want you to digest this. I want you to digest what you're seeing. And he takes this book. And listen, by the way, that's where we come in. John is writing to who? The seven churches. He's writing to us. And this is where we come in. And he takes this, this book, this, this judgment book of Christ's return and reclaiming his, his earth. And at first, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. It's sweet to his, his mouth that Christ is coming. This is what I've been waiting for. But then, the reality, the soberness of what this means for the rest of the world. There's a few things that I want you to understand about this. First of all, what is this digesting? He takes this, and what does it mean to digest it? It's just something that we do all the time. When we take the Word of God, we mull it over, we meditate on it.